This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. As nature lovers and gardeners, we are, I think, generally aware of wildlife interfacing with our gardens, our daily walks, trails we might frequent. In my last garden, we regularly had deer, turkeys, hawks, quail, lizards, frogs, many, many songbirds, butterflies, and bees. We had the occasional rattlesnake and some predator, maybe a fox, maybe a raccoon, who twice made a meal on a backyard hen. We had small scorpions and a diversity of ants and a revolving door of gophers and moles. I'm deeply attached to the characteristics and seasonality of some of these, and something more like disturbed by others of them. I like to think of myself as an aware and enlightened nature lover. I'm clear about our interdependence as all species sharing this same lifeboat. I garden organically for pollinators, wasps, bees, flies, and butterflies alike. And yet, When I recently read the book, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, I became aware of a nagging discomfort, a dawning awareness on the edges of my internal perception that I still had some residual idea that there was a me and a them, that I held a barrier in my consciousness that was keeping me from a deeper understanding of where exactly wildlife belong and where I think they don't it was interesting to have to wrestle with. To talk to us more about this uncomfortable and very, very hopeful shift in thinking is Beth Pratt Bergstrom. Beth is the California director of the National Wildlife Federation and the author of a just released book titled, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, People and Wildlife Working It Out in California. Welcome, Beth. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. It's a delight to be here. So I always like to start with you and your personal background. Tell us a little bit about the influences in your life that led you to a love of wildlife and natural spaces. Yeah, you know, it was interesting to hear your shift, too, because I have a very traditional background in this, too, and the shift about the where nature should be and where wildlife should be, that that's new, too, because I grew up, my, my dad and, and mom loved the outdoors, we'd grew up in New England, we'd go to Cape Cod National Seashore and see horseshoe crabs and whales. Uh, so, you know, I, it, like a lot of people I ask, it came from my parents. Um, but it also, you know, developed uh, as an adult into just such a passion for life that it, it's a value that both professionally and personally I've just pr- pursued. I mean, for me, if, it's, if I'm not doing something involved with wildlife or the outdoors, why do it? <laughs> And talk about your professional development. As clearly as a young person, this became a part of your life. And then at what point did you go into the study of it and then making it into your career? Yeah, I get asked a lot, how did I get my job? Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing job. I get to, you know, the California director for the National Wildlife Federation. I get to go all around California and, and work on wildlife conservation projects. But I think it happened, you know, I, I didn't really plan it out. Uh, but I, it happened, I, I think, a little less organically, maybe. <laughs> but I'm not, I always say I'm not a trip 
typical tree hugger, and maybe that's where the shift in perspective about sort of a new nature has come from. But I have a biology undergrad, but I also have an MBA, and I've actually flipped back and forth between the nonprofit sector and the private sector. So I've worked in national parks for the nonprofits, but I've also worked for one of the biggest um, companies in the country in the for-profit sector. So uh, for me, this sort of blend uh, is where um, my values have upheld, although even the the private company I worked for in business, I was doing sustainability and, and climate change and wildlife work. But, you know, looking at how we can be creative uh, in our pursuit of uh, protecting the environment, I think, is where I've fallen. I don't know that I could, you know, tell you how. I didn't map that out, but that's where I've landed. <laughs> and so you, you, you've come to write this book, and it seems to have had its seeds in your being placed in Los Angeles. And... <laughs> Take us from there. Talk, talk yeah, about the development. No, you, you, you hit it. it. It's really interesting. Uh, I, most of my career, even when I worked for one of the biggest companies, has been in national parks. And I grew up a national park girl. I'd look at the, you know, the photo books of national parks, and I always wanted to, to visit the western ones. And after college came out, and I've been lucky enough. I worked in Yellowstone with wolves and grizzlies. And, and I live outside Yosemite and, and worked in Yosemite for a decade. So my idea of where wildlife should be has always been in those parks or refuges. And, and I really was holding fast to that even in this job. Um, you know, spent most of my time like a snobbish Northern Californian avoiding L.A. But uh, when I was starting to write this book, which originally was going to be, you know, a basic book on just California wildlife in general, the story of, of P-22 came about, the mountain lion that had, you know, hiked across two major freeways and was living in the middle of Los Angeles. And I remember reading it just being absolutely incredulous. Like, there's no way. I mean, L.A., a mountain lion, though, something, you know, what's going on here? And uh, after going down and, and the wonderful National Park Service biologist, Jeff Sickich, who I write about my book and who literally, you know, his, his, him and P-22 transformed my life's work, um, went down and walked through Griffith Park, which I didn't even know existed until taking this tour in 2012. And I remember at first thinking, oh, they should move them. This is ridiculous. You know, this is L.A., there's cars. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, you know, if this cat is okay here, he, he has more imagination than I do. Why... Mm-hmm. Why does nature have to be this perfect, you know, remote area for wildlife to thrive? Um, and it really got me thinking about the challenges wildlife face. And if the human environment's going to be off limits to wildlife, then they're not going to have a future because we are developing like mad, um, you know, this planet. And also the connectivity issue, which we can touch on, which is we know now that even, you know, the national parks, and we need to keep protecting places like national parks and mm-hmm. refuges, but they don't work biologically. Uh, you, nature needs connection to survive, and that's where our cities and our urban spaces are vital. But, yeah, with L.A., I see L.A. in a whole new light now. I think they're doing some of the most exciting uh, environmental stuff I've seen in a long time with the L.A. River, and, and hey, you can't top it. They are making a home for a mountain lion. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're joined by Beth Pratt Bergstrom, California Director of the National Wildlife Federation and author of a new book from Heyday Press entitled When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, People and Wildlife Working It Out in California. 
In the second half of the program, we'll hear more about Beth's thoughts on and examples of how people and groups are trying hard to work out coexistence with wildlife no matter where we live, downtown LA or the edge of a national park. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Before the break, we began our conversation with Beth Pratt Bergstrom, California director of the National Wildlife Federation and author of the new book, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors. We're back to continue our conversation. Welcome. For listeners who have not yet read the book, give a tiny bit of background to P22 his his age and species mm-hmm. and and what we know about Griffith Park as well and some of the the norms that would be expected and that are sort of broken through with this scenario. Yeah, well, he's um, P twenty two started out as a they um, pretty much surmised from DNA testing as um, a youngster in the Santa Monica Mountains and he. Um, you know, mountain lions are extremely solitary. They're not like African lions where they have prides. Um, they're solitary creatures, especially the males have to seek out new territory to find a home because they will fight to the death over territory. But mountain lions' territories are huge, 250 square miles. So he had to travel when he came of age. About one or two is when they do this. They call it dispersal to find a new home. Well, he's in the middle of the Santa Monica Mountains, and although there's open space, it's also one of the most highly urbanized environments in the country. So this cat, and I love Mary Ellen Hannibal, a friend of mine who's an author, used the word gumption, had the gumption to literally cross the two, two of the busiest freeways in the country and march into Griffith Park, which is in the center of Los Angeles. Um, this park is not on the outskirts. You know, you go there, there's the city, um, you know, mansions are all around it. Um, and he's, he's, surviving. He's been there since 2012. He's about six or seven now. Um, there's, they think, you know, plenty of deer. They're monitoring his, his environment. He seems to have figured out urban living and coexisting. You know, these cats are called ghost cats. They're extremely solitary. But I, so his story is great that this cat is like, hey, to find a home, I'm going to work it out in, you know, the second largest city in the country. But for me, the other part of the story is LA is celebrating this. And I would say any other... Um, probably city in the country, he would have been relocated or shot. Um, but that L.A. is comfortable with a, a predator in his midst and a dangerous one. I mean, you know, mountain lions, although attacks are extremely rare. I mean, I'm, you know, more afraid of the cars on the 101 than I would be of P-22. He is a wild animal that, you know, potentially could be dangerous. But L.A. time and again 
even when he, you know, uh, allegedly ate the, the koala bear at the L.A. Zoo, said, nope, it's his home, and we're okay with this. So I think, you know, there's two remarkable pieces here. One is that in the midst of development taking away home, this cat has adapted to urban living, mm-hmm. which is not something we're used to. We're used to saying, no, wildlife shouldn't be there. And then there's the L.A. story of L.A. saying, okay, this is great. And then there's the third piece, which is the world is watching. I mean, P-22 isn't just a California story, an L.A. story. Um, the project I work on that helps to build a wildlife crossing in his honor and, and to protect him, we get donations from Paris and Kansas. You know, the people are inspired by this cat's journey and what he represents. And, and that, to me, is changing people's mindset about how to coexist with wildlife, and, and that's the remarkable part of the story. It actually gives me, like, shivers. Yes. It, reading it, it, reading it, the story yeah. was, was really, really powerful, and that was my experience of the entire book, which, to give a little bit of an overview for listeners, is a series of stories just like this, a mountain lion called P-22 in a park in L.A., Uh, porpoises who have returned to the San Francisco Bay, uh, a family of foxes on the campus of Facebook, um, bears returning to the state, wolves returning to the state, and how our, uh, our communities, whether huge urban communities like LA and San Francisco or smaller communities on the outskirts up in Northern California where the wolves are returning, Um, how they are responding. And while there is, of course, residual fear and questioning and um, resistance, there is this incredible groundswell of, you know, come back, we're going to try harder as the human species to make this work. And there, the book really, um, I think one of the great dangers of conversations like this is that we anthropomorphize or romanticize these creatures, and that never happens through the the thread of your uh, narratives, but you make them very real and full of personality. And um, and I think another remarkable uh, response for me when I was reading was that you know, this is very much a story of habitat loss and degradation and fragmentation and where we have just messed things up. But um, whereas sometimes that can be overwhelming and you kind of shut down because you sort of feel like, oh, what can I do? What can we do? There is this underlying thread through your narrative and the examples of what people are doing of little shreds of hope of I can do this. I can do this. Um and I found it really, really, really hopeful, this interweaving of all of these issues. So a couple of things I'd like to get to, um, and you, you started to touch on these, were some of the ways that people are reframing and being creative about working it out. And for instance, you uh, mentioned the fact that we monitor P22. And this actually opens up this enormous new field of how we are using technology and citizen science and, um, you know, some there it's highly managed as well as being highly as hands off as it can be. Talk about how technology and science is really helping here in in a creative and positive way. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things, uh, technology, science, and I'd say so, I'd, I'd add social media to the mix. Yes. Um, because I think what, it, you know, wildlife is more accessible. Uh, you know, it used to be that you had to, you know, wait for a documentary film to come out. I remember watching, like, Born Free or, the, you know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom to see wildlife. But now you can follow P22 on Facebook and, you know, see the latest photos of them. So right. it, it allows us, I think, this this technology and science to ourselves have a relationship. And we don't need the middleman of a scientist or a you know, a TV show to be there. We can have our own personal. Well, so many people have these wildlife cameras in their backyards. Um, in fact, I get a lot of questions of the mountain lion populations increased. And although there, there isn't a, there's never been a statewide study, um, my sense is probably not. Um, they're pretty stable at this point, but is my guess. But it's just that more people are, are able to take pictures and then those photos are able to be shared, you know, widely. Um, that they've always been here. It's just we didn't know it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think there's this this wonderful day-to-day relationship that technology and social media allows us to, A, build that relationship, but also, as you said, participate in their protection. Um, you know, there's things like iNaturalist. I love, I write about the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles, which I think is doing a phenomenal job um, of engaging the citizens in not just liking wildlife, but contributing to it. People are you know, tracking bugs in their backyard and doing snail counts. And and it's connecting people, but it, it also is vital to protection because if we don't know what's going on with these creatures, we can't help to protect them. If we weren't tracking P-22, uh, his odds would probably go down because, you know, we need to know if he's getting enough to eat. We need to make sure, you know, um, he's, you know, is he trying to leave? Is he going to get hit by a car? Things like that. And all the, you know, they're studying. P-22 is not alone. The Santa Monica Mountains has about roughly 10 to maybe 15 cats in, again, the most populated urban density environment you can think of. Um, so I love it. I mean, people are tracking hummingbirds in their backyard. The Great Sunflower Project um, Gretchen LeBun headed up has a hundred thousand people planting a sunflower in their backyard to track bees. So, I love that we're not only better able to appreciate wildlife with this new technology, but also participate in the protection of wildlife. Um, and, and that, to me, is it means that wildlife has a shot. Um, that it's you know, if if we as a citizen army are advocating for wildlife. Um, and in some of the most unlikely places, I love that the the United States Marine Corps is has a Head Start facility for little desert tortoises. I mean, I just you know every unexpected walk of life you can think of. I love that I was able to uncover this in my book and celebrate it because there's a lot going on that's hopeful. We know there's a lot of bad news, but there's so much going on that's hopeful, and that's what I wanted to write about. One of the um, stories that was so moving to me, um, besides the envisioning of this land bridge from uh, Griffith Park in L.A. over to um, what, what's the other natural? Actually, it would be, it's over, it actually won't be near Griffith Park. This is on the 101, a little um, west of L.A. Um, in a um, Liberty Canyon, which a town called Ogura Hills. And although it won't help P-22, probably he'll be long be probably dead before it's, well, we hope not, but <laughs> before it's made, um, he, um, if it had been up, he wouldn't be in Griffith Park when, it, when it's constructed, um, if it was constructed. And although we celebrate him being there, he's stuck, he's trapped, he's never going to have a girlfriend or kids, you know, he can't, um, other mountain lions would have moved on. But yeah, that, that to me, that, that this will get built because of him is, you know, a mic drop, right? <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
you know, you are you are definitely going around some of the big threads and and tying them together for us. This idea of building relationship, creating relationships, and in part that's done through the GPS tracking and the social media and and books like yours. We're talking about connectivity, both social and physical, and we're talking about the citizen science at work. The majority of my audience is, you know, interested in gardening and plants. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to to bridge over to the National Wildlife Federation Certified Wildlife Habitat. We, are believe, are speaking to you at home. We can hear your wind chimes in the back. <laughs> and, um, and I know you are an avid gardener and your backyard is, your back garden is uh, certified. Talk a little bit about that program and what, uh, what are the criteria for becoming certified, and what are the positive outcomes you're seeing? Sure. Uh, first, I'm an uh, avid gardener. My mother would laugh. Um, I am an avid keeping in the, my yard native, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm actually probably one of those black thumbs. But, um, yeah, I've put in a frog pond. Um, but we have, except for a quarter acre, I, which is fenced off for the dogs, my six acres is wild. It is what the native habitat could be, and we have Everything that should be here is here. I have mountain lions, bobcats, coyotes, you know, I, and I know this because of my wildlife camera. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, the National Wildlife Federation, which you know, I grew up with, Ranger Rick, one of the best things we do is this certified wildlife habitat and, and encouraging people to garden for wildlife. Because as we said, you know, wildlife is running out of space. So we have to start thinking of our backyards or our schoolyards or, our, you know, our business yards, whatever, as okay to share with wildlife. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you want a mountain lion to set up shop full-time, but, um, but you can do things to create corridors uh, for wildlife, large and small, or to create homes for appropriate wildlife in your yards. And so the Certified Wildlife Habitat Program um, is actually, I think, really easy. And you can do it. You can have an apartment balcony and do this. You just need to put food, um, and we do not advocate feeding wildlife artificial food, but putting native plants for things like insects and pollinators and and birds, Um, a water source. Like I said, I put in a frog pond, and I love seeing the tadpoles, uh, you know, every year, and then they grow up to little froglets, and I feel like a a proud frog mom. Um, Cover in places to raise their young. And you can go to our Garden for Wildlife um, website, and there's all these free tips on what you can do in your yard, how to create a little amphibian house, which is pretty easy. Um, how, how can you create a pretty simplified frog pond? What are some good birdhouses to put up? Um, owl boxes, things like that. So to me, this is the, the future of conservation, that we're not putting aside many new national parks, but imagine like in a city like Los Angeles, and the National Wildlife Federation is working on this, if we created by connecting neighborhoods a monarch corridor by in, in, imploring people all across the city to, plea, to plant milkweed, or we create a corridor for hummingbirds by, you know, uh, even in apartment balconies, putting in the appropriate plants. So I think this is exciting stuff, and it's something that everybody can participate in. And it's fun. It's fun when the frogs show up in your frog mm-hmm. pond. It's fun when, you know, my, my, mother's, an, my mother's the avid gardener, and, and at her house she has a bird list that is really envious because she has this whole setup with a bird bath and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, 
plants that are appropriate for for birds. Uh, she also, I will add, had a mountain lion come drink from her bird bath, uh, which we saw, which was pretty remarkable. So <laughs> that's a pretty good uh, yeah. <laughs> image to Facebook or Instagram, right? I wish the photo had come out good. It's it's blurry. You can see his head, but uh, yeah, I think it. And it also shows to me like um, mountain lions typically don't do that. They um, they typically avoid uh, you know people. But I think that was. Uh, in the height of the drought last year, and it showed how desperate the wildlife was to seek out water sources. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other concepts or points you'd like to share with listeners before we finish up? I think we've really hit on it. I mean, I think that for wildlife to have a future, we have to participate in protecting them, and we all can. It's very easy. You know, the big project I work on, as you mentioned, building the largest wildlife crossing in the world. That's a huge project. We're going to get it done. But the putting the same sort of connections in your spaces, in your backyards, in your schoolyards, does just as much good for wildlife. And I think that it's, you know, having this sort of citizen participation, I'm pretty hopeful about the future for wildlife, even with the bad news, because it seems to be catching on. And I think that people... No matter what our political affiliation, I can tell you no matter who I talk to, your background, your, we all stop if we see an eagle fly overhead. Or, you know, P-22 story, there doesn't seem, it seems to inspire people across the political or demographic, you know, demographic spectrum. So wildlife, we know, inspires us, and I think that's the hopeful message for the future. And I want to, to point out that while I was being glib about the that's a great image for Instagram or Facebook, I think one of the things that I really came away with from the book, Beth, is your deep respect and your expectation that with education and the building of relationships, uh, we do not romanticize or diminish these creatures. We, in fact, elevate them to being equal to us and develop a, a healthy respect for their ways and for the importance to us of them remaining healthy and viable. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an honor. Thank you, too. Wonderful discussion, Jennifer, and keep, keep gardening. <laughs> <laughs> Beth Pratt Bergstrom is the California director of the National Wildlife Federation. She is the author of the recently released book titled When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, People and Wildlife Working It Out in California, out now from Heyday Press. It's a good thing to keep in mind that while this book is very centered on California, if California can figure it out, so can the rest of the world. If you're interested in the National Wildlife Federation's Gardening for Wildlife programs, take a look at their website, nwf.org. Under the Garden for Wildlife tab, there are three subheadings, including Butterfly Heroes, dedicated to encouraging home gardeners to provide habitat for monarch butterflies, whose populations have decreased by 90% and one-third of whose summer breeding habitats have been destroyed. The second subhead is native plants, an overview of the benefits of native plants for wildlife, soil, and the environment generally. The NWF has a new native plant search tool in the works for this section of the site. 
The third subhead is where you get your own garden certified as a wildlife habitat by verifying that your home garden is providing some amount of food, water, protective cover, places for nesting, and you are using sustainable gardening practices. The certification does include a $20 processing fee, which goes to support the work of the NWF. Seems well worth it for my garden, the wildlife it hopes to support, and to help in a small way this valuable work. Join us again next week as the conversations on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places continues. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.